Grab your Bibles, if you will, and let's return to Romans chapter 8. Oh, I did. I knew there was something else I wanted to say to you. You know, next week we don't meet. We don't meet here. Uh, next week is Easter week, and, and so we, uh, in lieu of Wednesday night, we move our service to Thursday night. And it starts at 7, and um, we'll have what we call a Monday Thursday. We're not the only ones that call it that, but um, it's called a Monday Thursday service. And then after that service, we will have pie together. We usually come in here and, and have dessert and, um, you know, homemade, fresh-baked, from scratch. Uh, no Cecil's allowed. Cecil's? Boy, you just dated yourself, didn't you? <laughs> no, well, uh, we take anything. We're, you know, beggars can't be choosers. We'll take what we can get, but... Um, let me let me do this just uh, to try and keep you um, awake. Let me tell you what uh, what um, where I am or where we are. We're taking a look at the atonement, and um, I, I'm taking a look at the atonement because I think that's broadly speaking what Romans chapter eight verse thirty two is about. You'll you'll note that's the verse that's under scrutiny. Uh, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he? The point is, in view in verse 32, is that God has done something by giving up his son as a sin-bearing substitute. So that is, of course, the atonement. Now, another reason that I wanted to do this is because we, we, this is our third week on it, and I think this is probably all, as far as we'll go, but, I mean, you could, you could talk about the atonement for a long time, folks. But um, um, it's, it was these three Wednesday nights before Easter, and so I just thought it might be good to to bear down just a little bit on uh, on the subject of the atonement, and and so we we've sought to do that. Now, you, you may recall um, I said to you uh, last week that uh, it's not it's not enough to simply talk about atonement, but you got to even be careful of your words uh, that our words are even hijacked by um, by others. And so I, I started with a couple of words uh, in terms of the atonement, descriptive words. I've tried to use as broad and as um, and as familiar a word as I could uh, come up with, the first word was the word vicarious. Um, it's a word that I'm sure you've heard before. I, I said um, uh, it's, it has kind of a, well, I, I addressed it in kind of two parts, that uh, vicarious is basically life for life. It is, um, it is the life of the, uh, excuse me, um, it is the life of the victim in exchange for the life of the offerer. That is, the victim's life is given in exchange for, or in the place of, instead of, uh, the one bringing that offering. Now, um, that is what I mean, what we mean by life for life. And then what I sought to do is say, okay, the other part of this is, if there's life for life, what life was given in exchange for us? Because that's what that verse has to say. It says, uh, uh, who did not spare his own son... And so what we did then is looked at kind of the who, uh, his own son, and, and then sought to figure out, okay, who is that? And so we looked at a couple of places, for instance, like John 5, 18, uh, where he claims to be the son of God, and the Jews understood him to be claiming to be equal with God. And so what I was saying is that this vicarious substitute uh, is his own son, and the scriptures talk about his own son as being uh, God himself. And, and I, um, uh, we kind of closed. I, I told you about um, 
Uh, I mentioned this. I meant to bring it last week, and, I, and I, this is kind of out of my files, but this is a, a, a picture, a, a copy of the Time uh, edition of April the 8th of 1966. This is what, was, uh, what, what appeared in Time in 1966, Is God Dead? And, um, uh, and then I alluded also to this book, this Jorgen Moltmann. Uh, very frankly, guys, uh, I don't encourage you to read this. Um, I understood about uh, 12.7% of it, and I figure you could probably double that, but um, uh, even 25% isn't. I mean, this is, this is some rough sledding in here, guys. And every time I'd find a little passage that I understood, you know, I was really excited. But, uh, but the title I mentioned, The Crucified God. Uh, God is dead. And I, and I said to you last week, yes, he is dead. It is God who died as the vicarious substitute. Um, and, and I went on to say that the, uh, one of the, the highly distinctive parts about Christianity is that we're, I mean, only in Christianity is, um, is there an emphasis upon a dying God. Um, every, every other, as you, I hope you well know, every other religion would never dream of putting their God on a cross to die. So the very distinctive of Christianity is the distinctive of a dying God, a crucified God. Um, now, so, then, so what I want to do tonight is this was one word that we kind of concentrated on last week, vicarious, and the, it broke it down like that. And then the other word, which is, again, it, it's a familiar word, and I tried to be familiar, or I tried to choose it to be simple, uh, is the word we're going to talk about the sacrifice entailed. Okay? Um, God satisfied divine justice by divine self-substitution. Um, and, but now, the, uh, if you'll notice in the text, it says, um, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There is that sacrifice uh, being, being mentioned. So I want to talk to you about that sacrifice um, in terms of understanding the atonement. Um, God could not distribute mercy to us without satisfying the demands of of his own justice and and vindicating the authority of the law. Guys, um, when God does show mercy or or find a way to save sinners, he doesn't do that by ignoring the demands of the law on us or on him even. Sin to him has always been a big deal. Um, It's not a big deal to us. But sin to him has always been a big deal, and he could not, it could not be dealt with any other way than by a substitutionary, sin-bearing sacrifice. And really, those are the three words, I think, that best summarize the atonement. A substitutionary, sin-bearing sacrifice. Now, um, Guys, let me go back to this issue because it has a very practical import, and I, I hope, hope you'll see it by the time I'm finished. I hope I don't lose you by the time I'm finished. This, this idea about sin being a big deal to God, and it's always been a big deal to him, and not necessarily a big deal. There's, that's, that's bad enough on the surface, but it has, it has some real ramifications that are ultimately hurtful, not only to heaven, but hurtful to, to us. Let me, let me see if I can explain. 
First of all, I want you to, if you, if you can find um, the book of Ezekiel, I'd like for you to turn there. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 9. Uh, this is just something that came out of my devotions this morning, and I, and I thought I, that it would be germane. And so I, I wanted to show it to you. Um, I, I, we're talking for the moment that, that sin is, is a big deal. Now, um, the fact that sin is a big deal sometimes gets lost when people start talking about the love of God. That's what I'm trying to make sure that doesn't happen. Okay? Stay with me. Um, I'm in chapter 9 of Ezekiel, and um, this is a great book, guys. I, I don't think that evangelicals spend as much time in it, but it's a great book. Um, this, this sentence um, that you... Uh, Oh, that you'll find in chapter 7, verse uh, 4, then you will know that I am the Lord. That is one of the themes of the book. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And it's in the midst of his pouring out judgment on Israel that then they will know that I am the Lord. Once he's done. But chapter 9 is, is rather illustrative, at least I thought. Um, God comes back to, um, to Ezekiel. And he cried, look in verse 1, he cried in my ears, that is the ears of Ezekiel with a loud voice, bring near the executioners of the city. Now, I don't know what word that you have in your translations. My translation says executioners. God calls for a a group of executioners. Um, Each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And then, behold, six men from the direction of the upper gate. So six executioners with their destroying implement in their hand, appear. Now, alongside them, you will notice, uh, later in verse 2, and with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist, and they went in and stood beside the bride. Guys, this is really dramatic stuff, and I I love the the dramatic, as you know, but um, God comes to Ezekiel and says, call for the executioners, get them out here. So six men appear. Bring them. I mean, I want their I want their weapons in their hand. And so they start coming from the north or wherever they're coming from. And so six executioners with their weapons in their hands show up. And along with them is a man in linen. Does it say white linen or just say linen? Just uh, he's in linen. Oh, and he's got a writing stylus at his hip. He's got something to write with. Now imagine this, now guys. Uh, God is still talking about what he's about to do to, uh, to Jerusalem. Verse 3, now the glory of the Lord of Israel, or the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherub, etc. Um, now, here's the instructions he gives in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, by the way, he says to the man clothed in linen. God is now speaking to the man in linen, and he says, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, notice here, guys, and put a mark on the foreheads, of the men, notice, who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it, committed in Jerusalem. Now, guys, do you see what happened? By the way, um, if you'll read on, um, um, well, verse 10, for instance. As for me, says God, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon them. Um, uh, now, so we've got the six destroyers with weapons in their hands, a guy with linen. He's got this writing style. He says, I want you to pass through Jerusalem, and I want you to mark off a group of people. 
And here's the group of people I want you to mark off. I want you to identify with some kind of mark on their foreheads. You just mark, you know, X on them. You know, it doesn't say a 666 here, guys, so all of you apocalypticists can settle down. He just marks something on their foreheads. And here's the people I want you to mark. I want you to mark the people who sigh and groan over the abominations that we find in Jerusalem. And then read on, ladies and gentlemen, the rest of them I want you to destroy. Who is it that escapes the outpouring of the wrath of God? It is people for whom Sin is a great grief. You know, it's interesting. it was interesting to me when I read that. You know, it doesn't say, I want you to put a mark of linen, I mean, I mean, God the linen, I want you to put a mark on the foreheads of those people, all who have avoided sin. It doesn't say that. I want you to put a mark on all those who uh, are uh, sinless. It doesn't say that. I want you to mark off those for whom sin is a burden. Because that's who I'm going to spare. The rest of them, I'm going to destroy. So, the six executioners pass through Jerusalem and destroy everybody. (laughs) And the only ones that get spared are the ones for whom sin is a big deal. Sighing and groaning over sin. Guys, um, we, we don't see much of that today, now do we? You know, I was trying to make the point that sin has always been a big deal for God. And gang, you know, when you when you look through the scriptures and you find the images that the Bible used to describe, it's not always describing sin. Sometimes it's simply describing God's character in in um, in uh, in response to sin. For instance, this image: um, light, God dwelling in unapproachable light. God, who is light, with whom there is no darkness. That image, light. Or, or, or this one, fire. Fire. Guys, when, when the Scriptures, I mean, perk your ears up. When you, I mean, you don't need to be thinking about hell, but you can think about His, his, his inflexible hatred for sin. It's a fearful thing, says the book of... You know, I always love to do this. I always love to quote this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I always like to ask people, now what testament does that come out of? Is that the Old Testament or the New Testament? People, oh, that's the Old Testament. You know, a fearful thing falling into the hands of... No, ladies and gentlemen, that comes out of the book of Hebrews. And and the the image of fires in chapter 10 and chapter 12. I I had it marked in. We don't have time to look at it. But my my, my favorite image... There's others. There's ones like um, distance or height. Um, you know that when, when it comes to God looking at it's 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 it's, um, it's metaphorized. I just made up a word. It's metaphorized with words like light and and fire and 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 distance and height. H e i g h t. But the, my favorite one, which is the most dramatic of them all is vomiting. 
I know that's a somewhat crude term, folks. But that's the term that you find in the book of Revelation. The Greek word is imeo. To spit out. When God comes in contact with a sin, with sin. Now, guys, sin has always been a big deal with God. I want, I want to read you something. This is from John Stott. You know, first of all, let me read you this. This is from R.W. Dale in his book on the atonement, which is about 600 pages long. Um, I just took three weeks. He took 600 pages. Um, he says, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. Sin's not a big deal to us, so we can't imagine it being a big deal to Him. Guys, all of those images that I gave you, the light and the fire and the vomiting, all of them say the same thing, and that is that God cannot be in the presence of sin. And when He's in the presence of sin, it makes Him sick. Remember, guys, all those who have a mark on their forehead, who groan and sigh over sin, those are the ones that avoid the executioners. I want to read you something from John Stott. And the reason I'm going to read you this from Stott is because I just wanted you to know, John Stott is not some um, 17th century, 18th century theologue. He's still alive. Some of you have read something by John Stott. Maybe you've read Basic Christianity. or uh, you know, John Stott is... Uh, He's still around, I think. He hasn't died yet, has he, Jeff? Uh, well, this is, what, this is what Stott says. Unhappily, even in the church, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. There is much shallowness and levity among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably say of us that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen. Oh, I love these three sentences. In public worship, our habit is to slouch or squat. We do not kneel nowadays, let alone prostrate ourselves in humility before God. It is more characteristic of us to clap our hands with joy than to blush with shame or tears. Listen to this sentence, folks. This sentence is just... He says... We saunter up to God to claim His patronage and friendship. It does not occur to us that He might send us away. Because we think forgiveness is our right. That's just what God does. He's in the business of forgiving. So He forgives. It never crosses our mind that when we enter his presence that he might not receive us. In other words, if we dare to call our judge our father, we must beware of presuming on him. It must even be said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. 
You know, guys, I want you to enjoy the love of God, but I want you to enjoy the love of God who has an inflexible hatred of sin. Um, just a couple of more sentences. Oh, this is from Emil Bruner, uh, who says, Where the idea of the wrath of God is ignored, there also will be, there also will be there, no, <laughs> there also will there be no understanding of the central conception of the gospel. That is, where people don't take sin seriously, you're never going to enjoy the beauties and the depth of the gospel, the uniqueness of the revelation in the mediator. Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be measured, will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. I really kind of blew that. But guys, sin has always been a big deal to God. It's just not a big deal to us. And we've been born and raised and reared on a on a, a, a God of love, and I want us to be. But it's 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 never been true that sin has not been important to Him. He can't find a way to forgive by ignoring sin, and he and he won't do it. The text, the text. We got to hurry. Back in Romans, the text states that he did not spare. Far from sparing him, he gives him up. You know, guys, we use language like that um, when we when we say that somebody has given his best. Well, he, he spared no expense on that reception. <laughs> that is, there's not another thing that he could have put in that reception because he, he didn't spare any. Well, that's the language of Romans 8.32. There was nothing more that God could have given. Nothing more that God could have done. You know, we, we human parents, we spare our kids from the full punishment that they deserve. But God did not. You know, by the way, guys, just as an aside, if you can get a hold of this, I bet you Randy Ray's got it for you. If you can get a hold of this, it's a little article written by Michael Lewis that was appeared in the New York Times Magazine on Sunday, oh, a couple of three, a couple, two and a half years ago, called Coach Fitz. If you can find it, read it, particularly if you're a father. It is incredible. This Coach Fitz coached people like uh, Archie Manning. He also coached our own Sean Tui. And the, the men that he used to coach, like Archie Manning and Sean Tui, are trying to raise money to build a gym that's dedicated to him, while at the same time, the people who have sons in this private school in New Orleans today are trying to get him fired. This is really an aside, isn't it? Um, because we're so tender on our children and don't want them to, you know, experience the full weight of consequence for their misdoings. So we, we prevent our children for, from experiencing the full weight of, of their sin. But the Father does not... Jesus is delivered up by his Father to bear the full penalty of God's law on sin. Nothing was withheld. 
in his giving him up. Now, guys, here's kind of the punchline. It is that combination of incomparable relationship, that is, his own son, the combination of his own son plus his refusal to spare him where the marvel of his love is seen and enjoyed. We're unimpressed with the love of God because we're unimpressed with our own sin. That, that was really my point. God is, I mean, sin is not a big deal to us. It's a big deal to God. And, and, and spiritually, you know, vertically we're losers that we lose out. But we lose out simply by enjoying the great profundity of the love of God because sin's not that big a deal with us. So Jimmy Young can get up here and scream bloody murder about, his, about the love of God. Yeah, 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 that's nice. I had a dog once I loved. It's only when we understand that about our sin that we can begin to enjoy something about what the Father has done to pay a ransom for it. And then we can be overcome by love. Now, guys, I got, I got eight minutes. I don't know if anybody else's mind in this room goes where I'm about to go. <laughs> um, but I'm going to go here. And, and I hope I can tell you and explain why I go here. But, I, you know, this is, this is purely an, uh, an original sequence. I, again, I don't know that you can stay with me, but I'll, I'll do my best. When you're talking about the, the, the magnitude of the love of God for sinners, one of my concerns is that the reaction will be, well, okay then. If there is such great love available for us sinners, then, um, then I really don't need to be too concerned over my moral failings. And, and so the whole standard and the whole call to holy living takes a, takes a hit because we, miss, we, we wrongly respond to this, this great truth that God loves sinners. But that's where my mind went. I don't know whether yours went there or not. And I, but I'm saying, okay, you preach this and you try to communicate the depths and the breadth and the length and the height and the width of the love of God. And then people say, well, thanks, Jimmy. You, you really done me a good turn there. And, and I appreciate knowing all that. And now, you know, I, it doesn't really matter the way I you know, live it all. So to try and, and just address that for a brief six minutes, I want you to turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. So if you can find um, uh, Isaiah, you're pretty close. The author of Lamentations is Jeremiah. In fact, if you've ever been to my home, uh, I, have a, I have a painting that I absolutely love. It's a painting of Jeremiah uh, the, the weeping prophet who's leaning on a Bible um, with this, I mean, it's a Rembrandt print, and um, 
Jerusalem is burning in the background. Well, that Jeremiah, the one who is so overcome with what happened to Jerusalem, writes the book of Lamentations. Now, I I encourage you to take a look at this in your own spare time. Chapter 1 is all about what God has done for his beloved Jerusalem, or to his beloved Jerusalem. But then you turn to chapter 2. And I want you to see this. Um, Let's begin at verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. Keep, stay with me. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around him. Here's, here's the verse that I absolutely love. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. Now guys, here's the point. Who is the object of all of that. Who is it? It is God's people. Gang, God is not some tribal deity that is in business to protect His little region of people against all the enemies that attack. And so he comes out screaming like this, this, this mighty warrior to defend his people from, from all the people that will attack him. You know what he does? On occasion, he will take his bow and he will turn it on his own people. He becomes the enemy of his own people. Why? Gang, God God is not simply opposed to the sin of Babylon and the sin of Assyria. He's opposed to the sin of Israel. And wherever that sin exists, he will aim his arrows. With this singular, glorious difference, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That is for His people. But never mistake, my dear brothers and sisters, never mistake the love of God to think 
that your sin, that our sin, that my sin is no big deal. It's a big deal. Always has been. Never has been a small deal. And when he sees it, he becomes the enemy of it. Now, if you can do this, if you can find Ezekiel one other quick time, we're finished. I wanted you to notice one other thing in chapter 9. I should have told you to stay there. Remember, we're back to the six men who are the executioners with them, oh, and the guy in the linen. He's got to mark all the guys who groan and, and, and um, sigh over sin. Look at verse 6. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. Now, what's that mark? Oh, I want you to mark off those people who sigh and groan over sin. Ah, not the ones that are sinless, not the ones that don't have any sin. No, no, no. Just the ones who hate their sin. Keep reading with me the next sentence. And I want you to begin. At the sanctuary. I want you to begin with my people. And those for whom sin has become a trifle. Execute them. With this fundamental difference for the believer, his mercies are new every morning, and his love is steadfast. Great is his faithfulness. Sin. Is a big deal. And you and I should sigh and groan over it. Lord, I pray that you will awaken the hearts and, and souls of your people to the to our own casual laissez faire attitude towards sin. You don't take one, and nor should we. And I pray that. You will find among us people who sigh and groan. Lord, I know you're not going to find anybody that doesn't have any sin. But oh, might there be people who sigh and groan over their sin and are marked off because sin is such a a vital enemy to their own souls. And we do all that we can to avoid it. But Lord, it is in a consciousness of knowing how great is sin that the delivering up of your own Son for it becomes all the more precious for us. What you've accomplished is that which we cannot fully understand. But we do sigh. We do groan that it was our sin that caused that. Might we walk out of here, O oh God, with a greater enjoyment of how deep, deep, deep is the love of God for His people. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.
Gewalt.